Okay. So before we begin then, let us all take a moment to bring our palms together in veneration of the perfect one, the infinitely compassionate one, the merciful one, the omniscient one, our guide, our master, and our teacher, he who laid down the path for our salvation, it is because of his infinite compassion and loving kindness that today we are able to benefit from all that hard work that he has made on our behalf. So let us be grateful for that. And what he expects from us as a token of our gratitude is not our mere veneration, but rather our commitment to this path. So that is why we are here. Let us remind ourselves of that purpose as well. And with those, with those thoughts in mind, let us make a beginning to today's talk. So bringing our palms together, let us make a veneration to his holy name. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Merit is such a funny thing. It's so funny because until you have it, you don't know it, what it is. A lot of people think that they're meritor meritorious. They think they have a lot of merits. But it is out of merits one actually understands what real merits are and what merits are needed for. Just think about this for a moment. I think most of us, if not all of us, would have lived reasonably good lives, reasonably comfortable lives. We've come, all of us, from many walks of life to be able to speak on our behalf and speak on behalf of, that, of those journeys that you took getting here. But whatever you were doing back then, whatever enterprise you were engaged in, whatever profession you were involved in, whatever role you played in society, at home, at the workplace, at school, in society, as many people do today, and I'm talking about a, po a point in time before you're coming across of the Dhamma in your lay own lay lives, as many people do today, you would have felt that you were very fortunate, that you were very, you were very lucky. Yes, there would have been times, problems would have come and gone. They would have always had the ups and downs in life. Who doesn't? But despite all that, I'm sure if you take a moment to remind yourself, just reflect on, on that past, not so distant past for most, you may have thought to yourself, you know, how fortunate I am, how lucky I am, 
And often, often, you know, we are reminded and we are taught to think about life in this way, to take a positive approach to life, right? If you listen to someone giving a positive thinking speech or read a book on positivity, often they talk about, contemplate on how lucky you are, how fortunate you are, because no matter what problems you are in, there's always someone who's going to be in a much deeper problem, a much, much more worse situation than you are. They're going to be in a much bigger problem than you are. So in those moments where they would have reminded you of this, you would have thought to yourself, see how fortunate I am. Let's say, for instance, you had some financial problems, you know, some point in your life, maybe 10 years back, 20 years back, okay? And then in those days, you were trying to find the means to get what you wanted, whatever that would have been. Right? Maybe you wanted to buy a house or maybe build a house, as is often done in this part of the world. Or maybe you wanted to buy a car. Maybe you wanted to send your children to the best schools you could afford. Maybe you wanted to travel. Maybe you wanted to migrate. And then you, were, you needed something, you needed the money to be able to do that. So as you were running around trying to find the funds to get this done, it turned out to be a real struggle. Maybe you went to the bank manager to try and get a loan. Maybe you went and asked your friends to borrow some money. And then there would have been times where you felt exhausted. Going there, here, everywhere, trying to get people to give me what I want, but it's just not happening. And then there would have been days where you just felt very exhausted and just you felt like on the verge of giving up. And then someone would have come along and said, hey, why are you looking at the negative side? Just look at the bright side of things. Right? Yes, of course, you don't have the means to get what you want right now, but think about all those people out there who don't even have a penny. People who don't have half the things that you have. Remember? They would have been friends who would have been there behind you either side of you, with you, reminding you, be, be glad, be grateful that you have a lot, although right now you're focusing on what you don't have. I'm talking about back then. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Although right now you're focusing what you, on what you don't have. Think about all the things you have. And then when you do so, you will realize how fortunate you are. Have you all been experienced this? Yeah, we all have had these times in our lives. So in those moments, we reminded ourselves, yeah, actually, you know what? I'm lucky, aren't I? I'm quite fortunate. And then we felt that was what good luck was all about. That, we felt that was what for, being fortunate was all about. There are always those who don't have. They would have reminded you, you know, think about the, 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 the wars that are going on around the world. Think about all the children who don't have you know, a square meal to feed themselves with. Think about the people who are dying of cancer. Right? Compared to them, what is it you don't have? They would have asked you to try and cheer you up. To try and get you to focus on the positive, whatever the positive was back then. Because there were lots of negatives going on in your life and you were so focused on that and someone said, no, don't worry about that. Think about the positive side. So they tried to cheer you up. Good. All good. But my point here is, in those moments, 
when you took a when you began take when you took stock of what you actually had and then stopped thinking about what you didn't have you began to think that actually they, they've got a point i am fortunate aren't i i am very lucky i've got my parents i've got my husband i've got my wife i've got my children i've got my house it's not the best house but i've got a house i haven't got the car that i want to buy but you know i've got a bike it's still something look at all these people who don't have any of these things so and you felt cheered up as well and in those moments perhaps you began to think yeah you know i i am fortunate aren't i i am quite lucky i am the lucky one the fortunate one so perhaps you felt that way but compared to that compared that to where you are now if you compare that in those situations how you felt back then to where you are now don't you think we are going to have to redefine what being fortunate is altogether do you think that was lucky compared to this do you think that was what fortunate was being fortunate compared to this so then if you felt that those things you had back then was because of merits then what do you have this for what is it that has brought this about if that was merits right if getting to go to america was that was thanks to your merits then what about going getting to go to nibbana if being able to get yourself a car or buy yourself a house right the house of your dreams if that was thanks to merits if that was because you were fortunate then what do you think about being able to listen to a dhamma talk what do you think about being able to become who you are today and commit whatever part of your life as you possibly can towards your salvation what about what the 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 merits that you need to have noble association to be among the people that you are among today you know those days there were people who cheered you up they said you know go on yes you can do this you, you think about the positive side of things they encouraged you but think about where you are today you know how do you even begin to compare what you had back then to what you have today if you actually took a photograph right from where i'm standing if you took a photograph of all of you and we pasted it on your maybe your facebook wall do you have facebook wall no you should have facebook wall if you don't have already you have a facebook group yes so if you put a picture of all of you on on your facebook right so your friends could see what you're doing right now you're going to get a mixture of reactions don't you think it's going to be a real mix of reactions especially if you are clad the way you are with your prayer mats on your shoulders what not right with your sataki around your around your neck and so on people are going to have a mixture of reactions you're going to get from them you know that there will be those who were with you they encouraged you they reminded you how fortunate you are look at all the things you've got all those people they were there back then i doubt many if any of them are going to look at you today as you are and say ah oh, well done look at you how fortunate you are i doubt that I doubt that very much. I don't know what you think, but I doubt that very much. 
many people who were known to you, who are still known to you, but those days they very much liked the fact that they were known to you, but today maybe not so much. Those days when they wanted something, they rang you, right? They thought about you, you received a phone call, but maybe today not so much. They don't feel that you have a lot to add to their lives. I, I don't speak to any of my friends from my school days because they don't feel I have much to add to their lives. What can I do? What should I do? I should send them an apology card. I'm sorry. Friends who used to come and borrow money from me. I remember those days. Some of them returned them, some didn't. Well, that's the way the world works. You can't change the world, can you? Some would come and borrow my car. Some would ask, uh, can you buy me this? Can you buy me that? Can you, can, you, can you help me get a job? Can you help me smarten up my CV? Can you teach me something about uh, leadership? Can you teach me computing? Can you teach me this, that or the other? People who used to come and they wanted to be with me. They wanted to hang around with me. They wanted to use me to connect themselves to other people. Those people, they're nowhere to be seen today. Some close, some distant, today they're nowhere to be seen. In fact, none of my schoolmates. I don't think I've met anyone ever since I, since I ordained. Maybe one or two who were shocked. That's a very common reaction. They were shocked, and then they would come one by one, two by two, less than a handful of all you know, in the last six years. By the way, if you're listening to this, this is not me saying you have to come now. <laughs> Even if by accident you bump into one of these, it's not, that's not me saying that. You can come not to see me, but to see what I have received. You can come to see not me, but what I have seen. That's what you should come here for, isn't it? Don't come here to see me. Come here to see what I have seen. So I think a handful of my school friends, none of my colleagues, I'm not complaining by the way, I'm just saying this is the, this is the state of affairs. So less than a handful of my school friends today feel and believe that I have something to contribute into their lives. But if I was a layman, I'd be surrounded by them, as I was. When I used to work at the bank, back in the UK, a lot of young people who would come to the country, right, they'd, to try and settle themselves down, you know, one of the things you need is a what? You need a bank account, right? You want to understand how the, how the country works, how the systems work, how the taxation system works, right? So, and then, you know, to settle yourself down, you want to get yourself a bank account, then you want to get yourself a, a credit card, you want to get yourself a loan, you want to get yourself a car, right? All these things. So people used to come and get advice from me. They don't now. Yeah, every other day, I'd, I'd, I'd meet someone. And they would come and ask me, how do you do this? How do you do that? See, the people who wanted answers to life's riddles, they would come and ask me for advice. But 
I don't know, maybe I don't have those answers anymore. They don't come to me now. I'm friendless. It's ironical, is it not? Don't you think so? See, when did we get to know each other? I ask you. We probably didn't even know each other when, when I was a layman. These friendships formed after my becoming a monk. But those friendships formed from when I was at school. People who used to associate me very closely, associate with me very closely, today I don't know where even where they are. They, they don't want to know where I am. I, they probably know where I am, but they don't want to come close. They don't want to, because they feel I might threaten their very existence. They, might, they feel that I'm a force of destruction. So they are not, you know, where is the merit? I ask you. I remember very well when I used to know how to make money. I still know how to make money, but I don't need it anymore. When I used to master the art of making money, a lot of people want to come and, wanted to come and be with me. A lot of people wanted my time. I used to be a consultant at the, at the bank and people used to come and ask me, how do I make the most of my investments? And I used to give them advice, investment advice. We used to do a financial review. <laughs> so especially if you were a new customer to the bank, I'd sit down with you and ask you, where do you do your banking? I would go through each of the accounts you have everywhere, your investments, your assets, right? your future plans. I'd use, I used to do a financial review with my customers. So if I used to do that with my customers, and you know, you don't need to even ask me whether I'd help my friends do that. Of course I would. What about family? Of course I would. But where are they today? <laughs> See, they don't need the financial review anymore, or they do still they still need it, but I don't I don't do the financial reviews anymore, so they don't come to me. I have become you think I've become valuable. They think I've become valueless. Today they feel I have nothing to contribute to their lives. As I speak about this experience of mine, I'm sure you can all relate to this, more or less. People who used to want to be with you, people who used to come to you for counsel, for advice, for guidance, today they don't feel you have much to contribute to them. If you're still in a lay life, maybe to some degree, but if you're beginning to transform your mindset to that of a, a monk's, in other words, a monk's attitude, then people are going to begin to feel that you have little to contribute to them. See, for, for people to want to be amongst you, or among you, among your, your group, your kind, right, your type, right, you need to have a burning desire. You need to have a burning desire for more. You need to have a burning desire for the same things that they have the burning desire for. But those things have changed now. I feel money doesn't make you happy anymore. I, can, I speak for myself. You can agree or disagree as you think is fitting. 
money used to make me happy but money doesn't make me happy anymore because happiness is not in money you need money but not for happiness money buys stuff that's what money does money buys a place to be to live money buys food so you can eat money buys you clothes right money buys you transport money buys you your cutlery money buys you your utensils money buys your furniture money buys all these things but there's one thing money doesn't buy money doesn't buy happiness but i do remember there was a time when i thought the complete opposite of this i thought money buys happiness and so i took great delight in reminding us myself how much money i had and in that i sought a lot of pleasure look at all the money i have <laughs> you know the funniest thing about this being happy with money or wealth is that when you have wealth you know it's just there you're not using it it's just there and you're happy about it but somebody else is using it isn't it what think about the money in your bank just imagine you had 100 million hm you had 100 million in the bank who's using it the bankers are using it right you're not using it but it's there it's there in a bank account now you're happy about the fact that you have 100 million to your name but you're not using it because actually to make use of money you have to spend it isn't it you only make use of a tool when you use it how how does the pen make me happy i have to use it right so how do you use money you got to spend it but that's not what we are taught to do we are taught to save money so we save money we save as much money as we possibly can and every morning all you got to do is log into your online banking just look at how many zeros you have and then rejoice see how wealthy i am and the bank facilitates this you know to so that you can do this because then the you, as you become happier you ensure that the bank keeps that keeps that money and they make their profit from it so when i used to have a lot of money i used to have a lot of friends i don't have a lot of money now so i don't have any friends the friends i have today they don't come here for money see how much life has changed you will be going through some of these transformations but i used to think that having those things i used to have back then i was very fortunate i remember driving my car i there were many times where i used to drive my car around the block right around drive on the motorways you know i just go for a drive people do that don't they just go for a drive you do that it's okay sometimes i ask a question and look away so you can answer <laughs> i used to go for drives navigating traffic stopping at the traffic lights and then getting myself onto the driveway and then sometimes driving for miles many tens 
20, 30, 50 miles, 60 miles, 100 miles. Just drive. You pull up at the petrol station, get pumped up, and then back on the back on the motorway. You had the music to go with that. <laughs> See, I was I was spending precious human life behind a wheel, telling myself, I'm lucky, aren't I? I've got a car. And the road ahead is clear. You can drive as fast as you want. And this, this, the, 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 the sweet breeze, you know, just uh, soothing you. And the night, and night music. And then you'd stop by maybe a restaurant, grab something to eat. And if you had someone with you, then you know, you'd have a chat about it. You'd go and stop somewhere. Maybe stop and go for a walk and come back and come back and drive. <laughs> These were things that I used to do. And I thought I was very lucky. I thought how meritorious I am. <laughs> I remember walking into my house, opening the door, and walking in, and then there was the nice soft carpets and you know the nice new freshly painted walls. The lovely living room and all the furniture there, you know, matching everything, everything very nice, very, very smart. Right? I used to think to myself, look at this, how fortunate I am. I have a nice house. I had a nice car and I thought, how lucky I am, how fortunate, how meritorious I am. Nice house and I thought, how meritorious I am. Look at the bank account, how meritorious I am. Ring a bell? Yes. See, that's why I say you need merits to understand what real merits are. I had this amount of merits back then, so I thought that was being meritable. That was being meritorious. Today, I have none of that. And I realize how meritorious I am. But I have none of those things. Going to a restaurant, sitting down with friends. I remember, you know, sometimes a long weekend. Go on a weekend excursion, right? Traveling, uh, catching flights here, there. I used to love air travel. So there was a time in my life I used to do it every every other week, because I just enjoyed that, you know, the experience of walking in to, you know, it, it's just that that environment, you know, that the, the ambience of it, you know, it was all very exciting. And then I thought, how meritorious I am. <laughs> Today I hardly step outside these four walls, except when I have to go to Rajagiri. <laughs> but if I didn't have to do that sermon, you know, I wouldn't be leaving this monastery. I thought that was being lucky. I thought that was being fortunate, and I thought that was what merits brought me. Little did I know that merits, uh, that you know, these are merits on a completely another level, on an entirely another level. I need you to recognize, ladies and gentlemen, how meritorious you are today, where you are. Even if all your property was destroyed, right? Even if, if every cent, every penny you had to your name, say the bank confiscated that, and now you have nothing to your name, 
right? All your property, they just, you know, burned down, nothing. And all you have left is the is what you are clad in, right? That's all you have. Let's just imagine there was some destructive force. They just wanted to take revenge on you and they took away everything that belonged to you and all you're left with now is what you're dressed in. That's it. If you in that moment feel what a loss I've had to en- encounter. I've lost everything. And if you start breaking down, if you start falling apart, I tell you, you still haven't understood how meritorious you are and what the Dhamma has been able to do for you. In other words, you are yet to understand the Dhamma. <laughs> Let's not count our merits by the possessions that we have anymore. That should not be your yardstick. Put all that to a side. You know, it's very, only cheap people do that. If your value is determined by the value of the things that you have around you, how cheap are you? Think about it. Let me say that again. If your value is determined, if my value is determined by the things that I have around me, and as the, as the value of those things go up, my value goes up. As the value of those things go down, my value goes down. Right? Like from time to time they publish, don't they? You know, the, the, the richest people in the world, right? On Forbes magazine and so on, you know, they, they publish the 10, the, the, the 10 richest, the 100 richest people in the world, the 100 richest women in the world, the 100 richest men in the world. So they, they take their assets into account. What assets do they have? What property do they have? How much money do they have? Right? And then they take the they account for all that and they say, as the economy is doing so well, this person's assets, this person's value has gone up. As the economy has taken a crash, this person's value, this, per, this person's value has gone down. So in other words, someone's value to be determined by the things they have around them means they are of no value at all. Think about it. So when I ask you the question, how valuable are you? If you had to say, hold on, Swami Nansi, let me go, let me ring the bank. How's the, how's the market doing? How are the shares doing? How are the stocks performing? That land that I have here, there, I've got three lands to my name. What is the market price? I have three, I have 10 vehicles. How much are they now in the marketplace? Like that flat I have in Kentucky, how much is that? Oh, I, I have this, 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 this uh, what do you call it, mansion I have in New York, how much is that? And then you, do a, you take a stock of all the assets you have and how much they are, and then you say at the end of the year, this is my value. If you measure your value by the possessions that you have, I ask you again, how cheap does that make you? You know, sometimes, have you not seen people who like to be seen with other people? This is very common in the political arena, very common in various other places in life, right? People like to be seen with others, like celebrities. They like to be seen. That's why, you know, when you see a celebrity, what do you do? 
Hmm? Yeah? Yes. And then that goes on your Facebook wall. Why do you do that? Do you do that with the with a random person on the street? Do you do that with a beggar? You hear someone this is known to be the poorest man in, in town. Do you do that with him? Or her? You don't do that. So when you come across someone who you feel that people ascribe a lot of value to them, people accept them as being very valuable people, what you do then is, I, I say you, I'm not really talking about you, I know you don't do this stuff, but generally people, okay? So when I say you, just take the good stuff. You're kind, you're gentle, you're very compassionate, yep, that's me, that's me. Right? But when I start saying about, you know, why do you do this, ladies and gentlemen? Why are you wasting your valuable human life? That's not you. It's everybody else, okay? So, you know, when people stand, stand by, by the side of a, a, a rich man, right, a, a, a popular person, and take pictures and then post them on social media or whatnot. See, what are they doing? Think about this. They believe that their value has just gone up because now they're associating someone who is very valuable. What that means is, it is my association with them that determines my value, my internal value. So I value myself by the possessions that I have. If I'm seen with a rich man, then that is going to give me more value. People are going to understand that I'm a valuable person. People are going to treasure my association. We need to understand, is that, is that how we want to measure ourselves? If the watch that you wear on your wrist is what determines what your value is, then how cheap does that make you? Should it not be the other way around? Take the great people who have come and gone. Right, let's just say, Angulimala Maharat, Ratan Mahansi. Is he valuable because of the robe he wore? Or is his robe valuable because he wore it? Which way around do you think it is? It's the second way around, isn't it? So why are you valuable? Are you valuable because of the things you have around you? Or are they valuable because it is you who has them? I want you to start thinking about this. How do you define your value? How do you determine your value? If you feel you're a valuable person, what determines that? It'll be different for each and every one of you. When you feel, I mean, this is, I'm talking about your own introspection. You know, when you just ignoring everyone else in this world, like I used to do, Remember I said, I used to drive in my car, think to myself, wow, I got a nice car. I, I can go places, I can do what I like. I remember walking into my office, right? Glass walls, right? right? Very fancy furniture, right? And you know, it was the city's lifestyle, right? So I remember 
sitting in my chair and you know swiveling around in it thinking to myself how fortunate i am i was deciding my value i was determining my value by the things i had around me wasn't i when there were times in my life where i thought i'm very educated look at all the degrees i have look at all the certificates i have look at all the accomplishments i have made i again i was determining my value by the things i had around me the things that i had earned for myself how cheap does that make me let's take say you get a poor man from the street just a random guy okay the poorest man you can find on the street you'd call him a beggar right bring them home not not home but bring them and you they're very scruffy right you give them a wash i dress them up you know smarten them up and then you give them the best uh you give them a, a shirt a nice shirt a pair of nice pair of trousers right you give them a tie a suit boots right you give them a nice briefcase give them a nice watch give them a nice smartphone right and say maybe even give them a car with a chauffeur right now how how valuable is that man previously he was worth nothing he was just a beggar now how valuable is he is <laughs> still the same but if you now take stock of what his assets are and he say right all these things i have given you they are yours okay now he feels does he not that he has become much more valuable than what he was he would tell you i used to be a beggar i had nothing to my name but now look at me i've got all these things i've got all these possessions so therefore i have now become valuable he'll feel that way we want want to feel that way he'll feel that way how do you feel about yourself you're saying that's how a beggar feels because he's earned all that not exactly he's earned all that but he's just got them yes it was his merits yeah without his merits he would not have received them he would still be a beggar he'd still be scruffy but his merits got someone to take mercy on him they brought him round dressed him up gave him a shower right and fed him gave him some nice clothes and now he's presentable very presentable indeed in fact now you determine his value by the things that he has before he was a beggar he had nothing to his name so you said he was he was no he was of no value at all but now you say he's very valuable do we determine our value in the same way do you want to be that kind of person so then don't be so cheap don't ever let yourself feel that my value is determined by the things i have around me but for people who believe that value is an intrinsic characteristic of the objects around them they can't help feeling that way if when i ask you this question ladies and gentlemen what is your value you start thinking immediately about all the things that you have your possessions right if you start thinking about maybe even your children and where they are in society today you know some parents this is how they take solace right some parents they they live happily because they keep reminding themselves my children yes you know i wasn't able to do much for myself but i 
sacrificed my life, bringing my children up well. I've taught them. I've helped them become good people. And now they're in a good place somewhere. You know, they're serving the world. They're doing very good jobs in very high places in society. So therefore, I'm a valuable mother. Again, how cheap does that make you? I'm a valuable father because of what I, where I've been able to bring my children, to where I've been able to take my children. How cheap does that make you? Whenever we determine our value by the things that we have around us, remember, these possessions that you have are not really yours. We, we've understood that some way, haven't we, already? You understand that there is nothing in this world that belongs to anyone. It's only a perception, isn't it? What is the pen made for? To write and not to, not to own. But you, you can't help perceiving that the pen is yours if you paid money for it and then the shopkeeper decided that they were happy to let go of it. And so you collected it and you came home. And now you think the pen is yours. If it is merely a perception you have and based on that you think, say, you know, this pen, let's say, at, uh, in the marketplace, That's how much this pen is. It's made of pure gold, let's say, and there's a diamond crust. Okay? Made of pure gold. Without this in your possession, your whatever your assets are, minus this. With this in your possession, when it becomes yours, now it's whatever your assets are, plus this. See, your value has gone up merely by acquiring this. Therefore, people don't like if someone steals this. If someone were to come and take this from you, you feel that your value has diminished. This is why theft hurts the person from whom the theft has happened, or to whom the theft has happened. Because you determine your value by the things you have around you. Your possessions determine your value. So if I ask you this question again, how valuable are you? And you're immediately starting to make a list of the things you have in your mind, right? I have this, I have that, I have my family, I have my friends, I have, I have wealth, I have property, I have, you know, I have titles to my name, I have honor. Let's take a moment to recognize and realize that these are all not things you have, but things you think you have. If these are all things that you think you have, then what is your value? Is it real? No, it's again only a perception. So that doesn't make you truly valuable. Your value then becomes subjective. Then people get to decide, others get to decide how valuable you are. You know, when economies go through various shifts and turns from time to time, some people, you know, when they lose, they have the money in the bank, but they're not worth anything anymore, and they go commit suicide. I remember when the financial crisis hit back in 2008, somewhere around that time. 2008, 2009, around that time, right? Some people, they just couldn't, they just couldn't stomach it. Because they had determined their value by what they had in the stock market. Now, the stock market is a fantastic example of this. 
because things go up and down all the time. Right? So one day, you're the richest man alive. The next day, you're worth nothing. See, so when you determine your value by the value of your stocks, right? But it is a conventional value that people have collectively placed on that. Now, when you lose that, the stock is still there, but the value of the stock is gone. Then you feel that you are of no value at all. If someone betrays you, how does that make you feel? When, you're, when, you're, when your children don't, don't treat you well, I speak to the parents here, mothers, fathers. If your children don't treat you well, how does that make you feel? You, you have this question in the back of my head, you know, in, in your, on the back of your head. You're thinking to yourself, I looked after my children. I fed you. I taught you. I taught you good manners. I taught you good values, right? Why do you do this to me? Am I not valuable to you? You feel this way. See, you draw value from your children. My value is determined by my children. So the fact that they care about me, the fact that they love me, the fact that they are devoted to me determines my value. Again, once again, you have ascribed your value, you have placed your value, you have allowed your value to be determined by things on the outside. I want you to ask yourselves, do you do this to yourselves? If you do, you're in a very dangerous place. What the Dhamma helps you understand, ladies and gentlemen, is it is not those things that make you valuable. When your value comes from within, you're not just valuable, you become invaluable. Your value must be determined by who you are, not by what you have. How close are you to real happiness? That is what should determine your value. When people collectively, society believes that these material possessions are the things that gives one happiness, then the more of the things you have, the more valuable you feel you are. That's how this value system works out in society. Yeah? Because, you know, having, there's a rock and you have this rock. How valuable are you? It's not, it's not a diamond, it's not gold, it's, not, it's just a you know, mud rock. How valuable are you? You're not valuable. Why is that? Because people haven't decided yet, yet, that it is that object that brings one happiness. So conventionally, no one's agreed that it is that one object that brings you happiness. And because of that, you don't feel that it brings you value. But what if that rock was diamond? Now you feel you're, you're, you're valuable. Because people, have, people now believe that a diamond brings happiness. So therefore, when you have it in your possession, people will tell you that you are valuable. Once again, what have you done? We have allowed our value to be determined by the outside world objects. So when I ask you how valuable are you, do you come up with a list of things that you have in your possession? Ask yourself this question. I want you to think about it. What is the answer to this question? It will be different for each and every one of you. Right? When I ask you how valuable are you, do you start to make a mental list of all the things you have? Your family, 
your friends, hmm? your material possessions. Do these things come to your mind? And based on that, do you determine your value? If so, you're in a bad place. You need to come out of this. Because such values are determined by society. Such values are determined by convention. Such values are here today, it's gone tomorrow. Don't be so cheap. If you are truly valuable, then it is not the things on the outside that determine your value. It's actually the other way around. If you are truly valuable, the things that are around you become valuable because of you. See, today they have built stupas. Right? Ruan Valley What have they enshrined in there? Hmm? Think about it. Why is the tooth temple or the temple of the tooth so, so precious? Not just to Buddhists, but all over the world. Why is it so valuable? It is because it belonged to someone who was valuable. That's it. Not valuable because of something else. See, the Buddha was not valuable because of the value of his kingdom. When he was just a prince, yes, his value was determined by the fact that he was a prince. And if that was taken from him, then he becomes a person of no value. Say if uh, uh, an enemy king were to come and completely destroy that kingdom, right, and take over, conquer that land, conquer that kingdom, now he's no longer a king because his kingdom has been conquered. But did he not become the king of a land that could not be conquered by somebody else? The Buddha went on to become the, a king whose kingdom could not be conquered by somebody else. That is the kingdom of Nibbana. So whenever you determine, whenever you want to, you want to determine your value, always check and ask yourself, are the things that I used to determine my value based on conventional values? Or are they really values that are intrinsic for them? If you do that, then you can become a valuable person without being dependent on the things or the people around you. Become valuable. Become invaluable. The closer to you are to happiness, the more valuable you are. And Arahant's value is not determined by his robe. His value is not determined by his arms bowl. His value is not determined by the hut in which he lives. One Arahant lives in a hut that is made of gold. The other Arahant lives in a hut made of mud. Which Arahant is more valuable? Hmm? You'll tell me, uh, Swaminasa, it makes no difference. Because they're Arahants. Right? So now then I say, okay, there are, there's a hut that was once lived in by an Arahant. How much are you willing to go take possession of that? How much are you willing? <laughs>
if that if that hut was once lived in by an arahant you know two examples there's a hut that is still made of you know maybe mud clay right some bricks still there and then there's a there's a there's a palace on the other side lived by a lived in by a king but you know he was a womanizer and he, he waged war on other nations and you know his 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 name is synonymous with destruction no kindness no compassion to its to his subjects throughout his reign all he did was cause havoc but he's a, he has a palace it's made of gold and then there's a there's a hut it was lived in by an arahant if you could only choose one which one would you choose if you could only use one which one would you choose you choose the hut yes conventionally the gold palace is more valuable but that's convention the reason that the hut is so pre- so precious is because of the arahant who lived in it why do you sometimes give sentimental value to some of your possessions right that photographs that hangs on the wall that suitcase that your father used that walking stick that your grandfather used sometimes you might still have them at home hmm those photo albums with all those old pictures that tiara that your <laughs> grandmother used on her, on her wedding day uh, the ring that your gra- grandfather gave to your grandmother when she when he proposed to her maybe you still have possession of these things maybe they are the family heirlooms they have sentimental value they have sentimental value because of who these objects are associated with that's why that's why they only have value to you they don't have value to the, your to your neighbor they have no value to them so even if you value them at you know say a lot of money when the uh, assessors come for the insurance they say no this is only a sentimental value this this well this object does not have have that that value intrinsically it has no value on the in the marketplace you know it's this but this value you give it because of your association someone you you're known to you someone you love was associated with it that's why you give that value see what if you could live a life so that everything you touch turns to gold wouldn't that be nice hmm? everything you touch turns to gold what do i mean by this how can everything you touch turn to gold it can <laughs> what this means is these things can become valuable because it was you who used them when you go to a museum a museum is full of just day to day objects material you know just plain old stuff but your cup is not your your arms bow your you don't have arms bows your plate is not going to end up in a museum but king rajasinghe his plate is there in the museum i don't know if it is but it should be <laughs> if it's not why because he was king rajasinghe that's why your shoes are not going to end up in the museum are they no they'll end up in the dump <laughs> but if you are mahatma gandhi hmm now you are chappal 
we'll end up where? In the museum. Why? It's not because of the, of the value of the actual object. It's because of who it was associated with. You see how everything they touch has turned to gold? Their price, their value now exceeds the price of gold. Now how about if you can live a life whereby everything you touch turn into gold? How do you do that? The fairy tales tell you that there, is, there, was, there were people in the past you know, who had this, this and fairy tales. Yeah, everything they touch turns to gold. You've got to live your life like that. Become a valuable person. When you become the valuable person, now the things that you associate, they become valuable. I don't want it to be the other way around for you. That's what I'm trying to say. Don't it ever be the other way around. My friends used to associate me back then because of the material things I had right, and the material knowledge that I had about the world. That's why they associated me. Today, I don't have any of those things and they don't see value in me. But unfortunately, if they did, how much I could help them? How much I could help heal them? But I can't do any of those things anymore because they don't see value in me. But you do. That's why you come here. Because you want very different things to what they wanted back then. So how does one live the life, live a life so that when you are gone, actually you don't, it doesn't have to be when you're gone, how do you live a life so that everything you touch turn into, turns into gold? by becoming a valuable person. And how do you become a valuable person? You become a valuable person by helping others become valuable people. And what is value in this world? What is unconditional value? These objects have a value, but they're all conditional values. Therefore, they go up and they come down. They go up in value, they go down, they come back down in value. But unconditional value is unconditional. Therefore, there are no conditions that determine that value. And how do you get how do you define that value? So if something is unconditionally valuable, then it has to be something unconditional, mustn't it? What is the only unconditional thing? It is Nibbana. What is Nibbana? It's a state of mind. Isn't it? It's a state of mind where you're truly happy. In other words, happiness is not determined, happiness is not dependent on external factors. Not just external factors, it is not dependent on any factors. External or internal, it's not dependent on any factors. That is why it's called unconditional happiness. So Nibbana is the only unconditionality. That's why it's the only asankata. You'll have heard. Vita Raga, Vita Dosa, Vita Moha. A state of mind that is free of desire, free of aversion, and free of delusion. In other words, free of the conditions that cause suffering. That is why Nibbana is defined as Vita Raga, Vita Dosa, Vita Moha. Raga Ke Desha Ke Moha Ke. Because Raga Desha Moha are the factors that cause, are the, are, are, are the causes that bring about suffering. That's why. Without Raga, Desha and Moha, there are no factors, there are no causes that, can, that bring up suffering. That's it. 
That is the real true value. So if in your mind you have Nibbana, if Nibbana is what you aspire to, if Nibbana is where you're going day by day, step by step, and if Nibbana is what begins to grow and foster in your minds, now you become truly valuable because there is nothing in this world that can affect that value. If you were to lose all the things around you, you're still in Nibbana. If you live in a house and the house was taken from you, you go from being a person who lives in a house to a house, homeless person. Don't you? How does one become homeless? When something takes their home. It can be the, maybe it can be, you know, a debtor. It can be the, the state. It can be the king. It can be a thief. It can be a fire. You go from being a person who has a home to a homeless person. You can go from being a rich to a poor person. You can go from being a mother to a childless person. You can go from being a husband or a wife to a widow. See, these states can change. All these states can change because they're all dependent on external factors. Now it is said that if, if you learn something, it's going to be there with you forever. Okay, then tell me. What about what you learned in your last birth? Did you not have to start everything from scratch again, this time round? Right? I mean, if you lived, say, in in, an Af- in, the, in the African part of the world, if you, if, you came from, if you, in your last birth, you were in Zimbabwe, you would have spoken Swahili. Do you remember any of it now? You don't. If you lived in 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 uh, in say, uh, Oman, you'd have known Arabic. Do you know it now? You, you don't remember any of it. <laughs> if you lived in China, you'd have known Mandarin. Do you know it now? You don't. But you learned all these things, and now it's gone. See, all things that you acquire for yourself are gone. Time will eventually take it from you, except for one thing. For, some, for, for time to not be able to take this possession, it has to be something that is unconditional. You understand the, the very definition of conditional means that there are conditions that determine its existence, its existence, right? That's what conditional means. So for something to always be there, it has to be unconditional. There's only one thing that is unconditional. Only one. Nothing else is unconditional. And that is Nibbana. So then tell me, how fortunate are you today that you have come across, because you have come across the only unconditional thing in this world. All the people out there, for all their merits, they have not come across the only unconditional thing. Their happiness is yet to this day determined by conditional things. That is why people constantly live in fear. You wonder, why do people live in fear? The richest man alive lives in fear. Fear and grief is not something he can escape. That's why young people come to us asking for happiness. They're looking for happiness. Educated people, they come to us. Rich people, they come to us. Poor people, they come to us. Uneducated people, they come to us as well. They all come looking for happiness. Married people come to us. Single people come to us. Widowed people come to us looking for happiness. 
People from all walks of life come to us looking for happiness. Buddhists come to us looking for happiness. Because they are Buddhists, but what they haven't found yet is <laughs> happiness. They haven't found Nibbana yet, but they are Buddhists. Hindus come to us, Muslims come to us, Christians come to us, atheists come to us, believers come to us, non-believers come to us. People from all walks of life come to us. Not because we are special. There is nothing special about that. That's why I say, don't come here to see me. Come here to see what I have seen. Don't come here for me. Come here for what I came here for. Because then you won't be disappointed. I came here because seeing me was not enough. I, I, will, I saw me every day. All I had to do was go in front of the mirror. <laughs> yeah? That didn't do it for me. So don't come here to see me. You know, that's why I sometimes, you know, when I speak to young people, I say, Puta, what do you want to do? You want to spend the rest of your life with this lady? Why? Because she's so pretty. You know, she sees herself every day, but she's still not happy. She wants to be with you. Right? If she's not happy looking at herself every day, how, what do you think? Why do you think you're going to be happy looking at her every day? Makes no sense, does it? I mean, it fails all logic. If the mere sight of someone makes one happy, then shouldn't they be happy all by themselves? Then why are they looking for somebody else? <laughs> then is it not evidence that you know, mere, the sight of someone is not going to make someone happy? The very fact that they're looking for someone to be with is proof that beauty is only in the mind. But if you ask some young people, you know, what do you want to do? I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. Why? Because she's adorable. Look at her. She's gorgeous. Look at him. He's so handsome. Why would I want to spend another day without him? What a sight. If only I could see that every day. Then you have to say in return, there is someone who sees it every day and they're still not happy about it. <laughs> who is that person? That very person. Yeah, the fact that being with another person makes you happy is, is flawed because that person is not happy. They're with them every day. Hmm? Sometimes people, they come and say, you know, if someone does a mistake, right? They come and say, Swami, I'm sorry, this happened. I say, it's fine. I only have to put up with you once in a, once in a while. <laughs> what does that mean? You have to put up with yourself all the time. <laughs> See, the same logic applies. If someone's really happy, they can't be saying, I want to be happy with you. So only look for someone. If you, want to, if you really want to be happy with someone. Yeah. Let's say you think marriage is going to make me happy one day. Yes, do? Yes? No. If you believe marriage is going to make you happy one day, Find someone who's who's happy without you. Hmm? Understood that? Do you agree? Yes. Find someone who's happy without you. Because if you go looking for someone and they and you say and someone says, My life is all but complete, and the only thing I need in my life is you, and once you are in my life, my life should will be complete. 
you know, what you have to th- start thinking about is, hold on a second. She says, or he says, that with me in their life, their life will be complete. I am already here. I don't feel complete. <laughs> yeah? I mean, I am always with me. Isn't it? I'm always with me and I don't feel complete. So if this person thinks that I'm the one who's going to make their life complete, that's crazy. That's crazy. So if ever you want to find someone to be happy with, go looking for someone who's happy without you. That's why I always say, if someone comes up to you, gets on their knees and says, please be mine. I mean, therein they have failed the test. Hmm? If someone comes and proposes to you, sir, too late. <laughs> if someone were to come and propose to you, right, that in itself is a fail. Don't you agree, ladies and gentlemen? If someone comes and proposes to you, please be mine, I want you to be mine, the very fact that they're proposing to you means they have failed the test. Why? They're not happy. So how do you, why do you think, how can you think that they are going to make me happy when they're not happy with themselves? I don't know, you know, I think when people, their emotions start taking over, their brain locks down and they can't, <laughs> they can't think, you know, all logic, rhyme, reason, they go out the window. But it all comes back later when it's too late. Isn't it? You take action in haste and regret at leisure. <laughs> this is good advice for young people. For the not so young people, it's too little, too late. But people don't understand this stuff. I know, even 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 what I just said earlier. Some people look, watch and say, "What's this monk going on about? It's mad." He's just mad. What's he talking about? He doesn't know anything. People don't want to hear these things, I tell you. They, they just don't. As I'm, you know, most people think I'm just jabbering. What's going on about, you know, life, what's the meaning of this human life, human life, you know, make more value of it, use of it, and, you know, pleasure is not in the outside world. 99% of people in this world will think that I'm the one who's gone mad. They do. And it's not just people I don't know, even people I do know. My friends will think I've gone mad. Distant relations will think I've gone mad. Even to this day, there are people who walk up to my parents and ask them, what was wrong with him? Is he okay now? And still, they're the ones who live in fear. I mean, come on. They're the ones who grieve. Come on. They're the ones who get angry all the time. They're the ones who are crying all the time. They're the ones who don't have a peaceful night's sleep. And they think, I've gone mad. Sometimes, you know, young children, they come up to me and say, Swami Nasa, I want to go ordain. I want to become an anagarik. Let's just say, I put all that to aside. I just want to come and spend my life here. 
put ordaining to aside, anagarika, whatever, put all that to aside. I just want I just want to be among people like this. People who have discovered true happiness. People who have discovered unconditional happiness. It seems like, you know, there are, there's nothing in this world that upsets you. And I, I, I'm seeing a, people, you know, a bunch of people like that. They come here every Saturday. They come here on Sundays. They come once, in a, once a week. And there are some people here, Anagarikas and Anagarikas monks. You know, they, they, nothing seems to bother them. How do you get to that state of mind? So you say, yeah, just come and spend some time with us and we'll teach you how. So sometimes they spend one week, two weeks, a few weeks, and then their parents start saying, come, 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 come. Enough. So, you know, then I say, well, I'm afraid, you know, if your parents are asking you to come, then you have to go because I, like, we can't keep you against your parents' wishes. So then they go back sometimes, or the parents come around, and they start to ask their parents this question, which I feel, you know, as parents, ladies and gentlemen, I feel if you can't answer this question by yourself, on behalf of your children, then let them go find the answer. You, you promised them. <clears throat> when they were born, you promised them, I will teach you how to be happy. You know, as responsible parents, we feed them, we clothe them, we educate them, but that is not what people have come into this world for. They've come here for happiness. Right? So they ask the ch- their parents this question. Dad, you want me to come back home, right? Why? So the dad says, I want you to come back home because without you, my life is incomplete. Without you, I don't feel happy. I don't feel content. I don't feel, I don't know, my, my peace of mind is gone. You are, you, you know, I, my happiness depends on you. So I need you in my life. You've got to be back. Sometimes they don't say the truth, but other times they do. Sometimes they'll say some all, all sorts of other things, like, what about your education? I mean, we teach young people here. So nothing's going to happen with education. Right? But sometimes they'll say, I, sometimes they'll be honest and they'll say, Puta, because I need you at home. Right? I'm your father, I love you, and I can't imagine a life without you. Sometimes they'll say, mother is going to get a heart attack, you better come home soon. Mother's pressure has gone up, you better come home soon. Right? So in these situations, I've seen some children, they go and ask their parents, Dad, teach me how to be happy without someone else in my life. Now, of course, the dad can't do this, because if he could, he wouldn't be asking the child to come back home, would he? So the dad doesn't know the answer. The mother doesn't know the answer. So now the child asks again, what if, because the, 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 the parents complain, you're just so, you know, so adamant, you don't want to listen, you're so stubborn, why do you always do what you want to do? Why can't you do what I want to do? What I want you to do, right? Be obedient for, for once. And the child says, okay, let's just say I, I am obedient. I, I listen to what you want me to, to do and I do exactly what you want. What if one day my children become disobedient and they become stubborn and they leave home against my wish? How then do I make my mind up? Teach me and I will stay. Because, you know, this is a, 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 a trap. This is a pit that you're bound to fall into one day, right? Because you see, it's happening now, so it'll happen again in the, with the next generation. It could, it could happen again in the, with the next generation. So teach me how to be happy without my children and I will be with you. I'm talking about a very recent ex- experience. 
a young man who came and he was with us for some time, but his parents wanted him back. He, he loved this place. He loved all of you, just being around you. Very seldom could he speak to me. Yes, he came here for the sermons. He came here after having listened to the sermons. I always tell this to everyone. All our people, you are all as well. You know, they, they come because they listen to the sermon, but they don't stay because of the sermons. They're very different things. They come here because of that voice, but they don't stay here because of that voice. They stay here because they feel at home. They feel they are among family. And that's not one person doing that. How can one person be family to 400? <laughs> it is the community that keeps people here. This endearingness, this, this affection, this kindness, this generosity, this compassion, this is what keeps people here. So they come here for the voice. Because there's only one voice you listen to online. Listen to a sermon, you feel, wow, this is what I want in my life. My life is going to change because I realize that true happiness is not in material possessions. It's not in the relationships I have with others. I want unconditional happiness, happiness that cannot be taken from me. So then they come here. But they can't stay here just because of one way. Because how often do, they, do, do, we, do people get to meet Guru Andro, for instance? How often do people get to meet me? Hardly at all. So our most recent arrival, I think I met, he was here for, what, six months or so. No, sorry, uh, three months, something like that. But I only got to talk about maybe th on three occasions. The rest of the time, he was with everybody else. But his parents want him back. Now, he's rather disappointed because he's asking the question from his parents. Now, you brought me back. Well, teach me how to be happy then. But unfortunately, they can't because what they haven't discovered, how can they teach someone? Isn't it? You can only teach someone something you already know. So then he asks the question, Dad, I'm happy to stay at home, but teach me one day if my son chooses to leave home. I can see the effect that this has had on you. At least I'm obedient to you. I've come back to you. But what if my son is not like that? then how do I keep my state of happiness? How do I keep my calm? How do I keep my cool? Teach me and I, will, I promise you not to go again. And the, and the parents have nothing to say. That is because they have not yet discovered unconditional happiness. There is such a thing called unconditional happiness. That is why you are so meritorious. You have come across a teaching that explains to you how to be unconditionally happy. I mean, just imagine starting at this young age to learn about unconditional happiness. How old are you, Buddha? Nine. How old are you, though? Eight. Hmm? At eight years old, they began to learn the truth of unconditional happiness. When did you come across that, sir? See, much later in our lives, we discovered that and we are here. Because what we have realized is, this is what we've always needed in our life. 
So at what age do you think people should start on this course? What age? Hmm? After primary, secondary, tertiary, university, yeah? Undergrad, masters, PhD, and then get married, have kids, yeah? Start a family, right? Have a build a house, go somewhere, settle down, earn some money, 30, 40, 50, 60. 60 is a good time, isn't it? If people come here at 60, why shouldn't they come here at 6? I mean, why do we have to make so many mistakes before we, st we start correcting our lives? How far down the wrong track do we need to go to realize this is the wrong track? You know, children like this, they have the intelligence and the good merits to recognize what we only recognize maybe 20 years, 30 years into our lives. That there is such a thing called unconditional happiness. But it took us, I think we can all agree, a long time in our lives trying out various different things to actually come across the fact that none of these things make me happy because all of these happiness, this, all this happiness is conditional. It is not true happiness. So therefore, my happiness is determined by external objects. My happiness is determined by external people. See, how long it took us to come across this truth? Then tell me what is real merit? How much money do you have in the bank, Putta? He probably doesn't even have a bank account. Are you meritorious or do you think he is meritorious? See? So you understand what real merit is. As I say, I used to think I was meritorious. I used to think that I was very fortunate driving in my car, you know, driving down, you know, down, downtown and looking around and, you know, thinking to myself, I'm in the UK now, you know, I'm where people go to make dreams happen, right? I thought I was meritorious and look where I am back again, <laughs> back where I started. I've just gone full circle. But all that, all those milestones that I have to, park, to, have to cross to come back here, some will say, well, shouldn't you go through that experience before you learn that this is the truth? Hmm? Well, then, why do, you, why do you look either side of the road before you cross? Don't. Learn from the experience. Huh? <laughs> Isn't it? That is why we have teachers. Yeah? So then, then don't use the light bulb you have at home. Invent it. Start from scratch. Start with a candle. Right? And then realize the candle runs out. And then don't use the light bulbs you have at home. Then find, discover it for yourself. All, you know, all again. Go reinvent the wheel. We are fortunate because there are those who have gone, traveled this path before us. This young child here, this doer is very fortunate because there are so many people around her, around them, to tell them this, that path we used to take was not the right path. 
it didn't make us happy. It left us in fear, it left us in grief. So that path was not the right path in life. That is why I'm here today, is what you're actually speaking out, but silently. Each and every one of you, your presence here is confirmation, is a testimony to the fact that all these parts we took in life were meaningless. You know, we have people who represent all parts of society, very educated people, well-off people, right? young people, all parts of society, very successful people. So if we have representation from all parts of society and they're all here today under this roof, isn't that evidence then that all those things were to no avail? They were in vain. Yes, you did a lot, but it was much ado about nothing. You did a lot. You did a lot, but didn't achieve a lot. We've come into this world, we do a lot, and then we die having achieved nothing. But if you can become someone valuable, invaluable, that value is within, then you become invaluable. It is not value, it is not determined by the things around you. It is not determined by your possessions. It is determined by how close you are to true happiness. That happiness cannot be taken away from you. That is what everyone should aspire to. Aspire to a happiness that cannot be taken from you, that cannot be stolen from you. All your wealth can be taken away from you. That's why you have to safeguard it all the time. That's why it's in a bank, because you can't keep it safe at home. That's why they, they invented the banks, right? Those days people used to have something, they you know, kept it at home, you know, they had the, the cattle, but you know, those things, they died. Right? Any gold or any other possessions that people used to have, you know, they put it under the mattress, under their pillows and into a box, and, but you know, fire, fire takes it, the, the, the water takes some of it, right? Age, time takes some of it, thieves take the, the rest of it, the taxman comes and takes some of it. Everything that you, you, you can acquire is taken from you. So your life is just, you know, uh, simply a case of, it's like the ocean. Like the ocean, what it does every day is it collects the water from all the streams. All the rivers bring it water. But while the rivers are bringing it water, there's a much more powerful force that's sucking out the water. And that is the sun. So an ocean, to remain an ocean, must constantly keep feeding itself. Because it's, you know, in, while, it's part of, part, while it's, it's being fed, by the streams and the rivers that, that feed it, the sun is constantly taking what it has. So an ocean, to remain an ocean, must constantly keep feeding itself. Yeah, our lives have been like that. They used to be like that. Because of na the nature of anicca, whatever came into our lives, they lasted while they could and then they dispersed. They went back to their original selves leaving nothing behind. So it becomes a constant rat race. <laughs> no exit. You have, to, you have to keep doing something. You have to keep maintaining yourself. 
I, I don't know if they, you understand how exhausting that is. The, the fact that you can't feel the, the weight of your head on your shoulders, on your neck, is because you're used to it now. Yeah, have you not seen how in some households, right, some women, housewives, let's just take a simple example, some housewives, from dawn to dusk, all they do is chores at home, right? So from waking up in the morning, they clean the house, wash the dishes, wash the clothes, right? Then they go sweep the house, do the garden, right? cook for the, for the children, cook for the husband, cook for whoever, right? And they're just working constantly, not a moment's rest. For those people, if once they've done it a few times, you know, this could even be someone who, when they were at home with their family, they're not used to this work. I think a lot of people have these experiences, especially the women. While you were with your family, while you were with your mother and your father, you didn't have to do much of this work. That all was done for you. But then you decided, no, I want to go start my own family. So you left home, right? And then you went out of, walked out of paradise. <laughs> and then now you have to, you are now the person who has to do all that. So what your mother used to do, now you have to do. Right? And then in addition to that, you had children. So now you have to do it for all your children, right? See, your life has become... I, 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 I can relate to this because a lot of Anagarika Mahatmyas, they talk about their lives. Sometimes when they come up and they say, Swami Nahansa, I can't believe how much Guru Handru saved me. <laughs> the life I used to live, right from dawn to dusk, morning to night, my life was constantly like that of a servant, but to no avail. It was just the daily grind, that's all it was all about. Every day waking up the same thing time and time and time again. But I had, I, I'd done it so many times by the point I was preparing to come here that it had just become a very normal routine for me. Because when something you just keep on doing, you know, you've, you completely become immune to it. But just because you become immune to it, immune to it doesn't mean the pain's not there. You just don't sense it. It's just as exhausting, it's just as tiring, but you accept it as part of life. Yeah? So, you know, this is what people do. They have accepted it as part of life. That's why you can't feel the weight of your head. It's heavy. It's several kilos, but you don't feel it because you've always been carrying it. When you get on the scales, are you not, are you not surprised by how heavy you weigh? <laughs> Aren't you? Huh? Don't you catch yourself saying, my God, I'm that heavy? <laughs> but why do you not feel 60 kilos, 70 kilos? Why do you not feel that way? Because you're always carrying this weight around with you. So you don't feel it that way. So this process of abhisankar and going through vexation and, and pleasure, you know, this cycle, you don't feel anything wrong with it because it's just, it's just the way it's always been. That's why you've gotten so used to it. But getting used to it doesn't mean that the pain is not there. It doesn't mean the suffering is not there. It's there. You're just used to it. You become numb to it. You're numbed by the suffering of life. Come out of this. Open your eyes and begin to realize that this is what you're going through. 
Don't become numb to suffering. That's what people have become, numb. I have become so numb. Don't be like that. It's okay until the Buddha comes along, but the Buddha comes and preaches the Dhamma and then you go to awaken to the truth. Look at what's been going on. I mean, if I had a magic wand, there wouldn't be any lay people in this world. Honestly. I know this sounds so unfair. I know. It sound, it is, and it is very irrational as well. But, you know, I'm allowed to dream as well, aren't I? <laughs> when are dreams rational? <laughs> if I had a magic wand, I'd wave it at each and every one of you and free you from all the burdens and the obligations and the whatever is keeping you bound to your lay lives. I honestly would. Because I know some of you, 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 you haven't been able to come as, as close as, you, as you'd want to. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a distance you can come and beyond that you can't because there are knots that have been tied. There are duties and there are shackles that have been put on your arms and you can't, you can't come beyond that point. That's where you have to stop. Walls are built, gates are closed. You can't come beyond that point. That's why we appeal to urge you know, young people to, to make this choice in life before natural, you know, natural circumstances right, take over, <laughs> natural disasters. Yeah, before natural disasters take over. Yeah, if, if, if marriage life is going to make you happy, why are married people here? Is it for a free roti? Huh? If it was, then I still have to ask you, if marriage life is so good, why come here for a roti? Don't even get that at home now. <laughs> if, being, if being educated is good, why are educated people here? If that is the path to happiness. Hmm? If wealth is what is the path to happiness, why are wealthy people here? Why? Think about this. If traveling around the world is what's going to make you happy, why are people who travel the world, you know, every day, every year, every month, they go somewhere? Why are they here? If you think this is madness, why are Doctors here. Why are psychologists here? You don't know they're among you. They have studied the human psyche. They have studied human behavior. But the real unconditional happiness, they've only found in the Dhamma. There is only one truth, ladies and gentlemen. As I say, if I had a magic wand, you wouldn't be where you are today right now. You wouldn't be. I wouldn't do it against your wishes, but first of all, I'd change your wish. Honestly, I speak from the... From, this, is, this is nothing but the truth, I swear to you. Every human being deserves this. You know, you know what you're heading for. You know, if, if these young children, if they don't get the right path laid down for them by their parents, whoever who's responsible, whoever's responsible for them. You know they're going to live the same lives that you did. 
Don't you? You know, if you're listening to these sermons now, and you have been on this path for some time, any mother here, any woman here, any 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 gent here, right? Any any lady or gent here, are you willing to put your hand up and say, Swami I did the right thing, right? I lived the right life, the perfect life, and it is I'm now 45. It is at 45 one should discover the Dhamma, not before that. Until 45 years, you have to be a mother, you have to be a, a husband, you have to be a wife, right? You have to do your household chores, you have to do a job, you have to earn money, you have to do build a house, you have to buy a car, you have to do all these things. And then at 45, you have to come across the Dhamma and then come here. Any mother who's willing to put her hand up and say, I live the perfect life? Anyone? No, if you, if you are, then you haven't understood what I'm talking about really. So each and every one of you here are saying, if I had this before, if I had this earlier, yeah? If you had this earlier, these children wouldn't be here. <laughs> that is the truth. I mean, fortunately, my mother didn't come across this teaching. <laughs> fortunately, that's why I'm here. <laughs> So, you know, if we care so much about our children, why do we make them go through the same pain and the turmoil that life has brought us? It is incumbent on us as responsible adults, as parents, you know, as, because we, we confess to loving our children so dearly. That's why I always, you know, felicitate and congratulate parents for bringing their children here, you know, even at such a young age, nine, eight. Uh, to start at such a young and tender age, because this is the right path, they'll not be wasting their lives. We wasted our lives. Don't you think? Yeah. We wasted our lives in utter waste. Because we thought happiness was in those things out there, so we spent our lives trying to acquire them. Last week I drew the cycle on the board, remember? You start by wanting things because people tell you things in this world that bring you happiness. Right? And then you start seeking them. Tell me if this is not your lay life. Then you spend time acquiring them when you found out where they were. And then you spend life pleasing yourself. Right? One thing after the other. All of this driven by ignorance and attachment. This is the lay attitude. Whatever you want, I go seeking it, finally I go acquiring it, and then I please myself, and then you just keep going around in this circle. Because every time you are pleased, it feeds the ignorance. It is ignorance that it feeds, right? So therefore you become even more ignorant. There's no limit to ignorance. Yeah? And then you, you, you want it even more. And again, you, you go seeking it. Is there any point in this cycle where there's no suffering? What about the moment where you're pleasing? They're still suffering. Because there can't be pleasure without vexation. For pleasure to be there, vexation has to be there. And so in any moment you're experiencing pleasure, be grateful <laughs> for suffering. Because without the suffering, you won't be experiencing that pleasure. Be glad that you suffer. Otherwise, you won't be able to experience pleasure. If you, if you are so in favor of pleasure, then you be grateful to, pleasure, to, to suffering. Otherwise, you won't be able to experience that, that pleasure. This is what goes on. 
throughout this cycle, there's vexation. Even here, there's still vexation. Because it is that vexation you are relieved from at that point. But vexation doesn't drop to zero at any point. It's always there. There's a threshold that it can't drop beyond. It's always there. So throughout this cycle, there's vexation. It'll build up. As you go seeking, there's more effort that you have to make on behalf of it. At the moment of acquiring, you feel that, yes, I've got what I want. And then the vexation drops, but not to zero. And then it brings you pleasure. So that pleasure is again constantly, it, gives, it, keeps, it reinforces the ignorance. And with that ignorance, you feel more attached to it. And then you want it more. This is life. I mean, there's nothing in life you've completed, is there? Honestly? Have you completed your education? The, but these are the goals that people set themselves. I want to complete my education by the time I am 25. Really? Are you telling me at age 25 you've you completed your education? Then you start work. Yeah? So now, complete education. We've started work. What do you do at work? Hmm? You have an induction program at work. Yeah? The, first of all, you have to learn how things are done. Yeah, you know your skill, you know your, the, you know the principles, but how they are applied at the workplace, you have to learn. So have you completed education? Who here has completed their education? No one. Then name one thing you've finished. Not one thing you've completed. Have you completed feeding yourself? No. Have you completed washing yourself? Clothing yourself? Earning for yourself? No. Because all systems in this world are representative of this cycle. Because it is this cycle that generates the whole world. So there cannot be anything in this world that is complete. This world, by its very definition, it is characteristically incomplete. We live in an incomplete world. It is that incompleteness that keeps people going day in, day out, every day. Always striving for completion, but it is never complete. Hope keeps the heart alive. Hope, only hope. As I say, it's not pleasure that keeps you going forward. It's the hope of pleasure, the promise of pleasure. The promise of happiness is what keeps the donkey going forward. The promise of it. The carrot smells sweet, but the donkey doesn't know what it tastes like. It has never known, but it smells sweet. So there's the promise of, of deliciousness that keeps the donkey going. You have never been made content. Nowhere. Never. Ever. If ever you were made content with anything, ladies and gentlemen, that would have been the first and the last time you did it. Name one thing like that. Getting married? Then why do people go through it another time? A second time? A third time? Doesn't, doesn't make people content. You'll say, well, there are some who do, there are some who don't. Well, not really. There are various reasons why they, they don't. But there, there are other more, 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 say, more profound reasons, or maybe more, perhaps it's the children, maybe. Right? They, because they'll still have wants. Wants and needs don't go away just like that. But, but you know, they'll say, I'm, I'm faithful. Yes, I accept that. Faithful. Yes, very good. But inside, not content. 
It's not content. You cannot achieve contentment by going through this cycle. Because it is not a cycle geared towards contentment. Incompleteness is the characteristic of this cycle. Think about any um, system that we have in the world. The whole world works in the way it does because it is incomplete by nature. <coughs> Agriculture. <coughs> Excuse me. Agriculture, for instance. You have to constantly keep feeding. Eating is not the answer to hunger. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? When I say eating is not the answer to hunger? It's not. Why do I say this? Because if it is, you should only be able to do it, have to do it once. And then you know you won't have to you don't have to you needn't have to do it again. But it's not true. You eat today, again tomorrow, you're hungry. Oh, in six hours' time you're hungry again. So eating is not the answer to hunger. It's a temporary fix. It's like if you want to be rich, is taking a loan an answer? None of you'll understand what I mean. But when you when you take a loan out, you've got money, right? Are you rich now? Are you wealthy? No, you're in debt, but you have the money with you. It seems like you have money. But you know you have to pay the debt back. And sometimes maybe to pay that debt, you have to take another debt. That is what some pe people do. They just keep, you know, keep the cycle going by feeding. De one debt feeds the other debt, pays off the other debt. So if taking out, taking out a loan is not the answer to someone who wishes to become rich, then how come eating is the answer to hunger? It can't be. It's only a temporary solution, meaning it's a conditional solution. For as long as the conditions last, it seems like you haven't you found an answer, but it's not the answer. Then tell me, when you want to watch TV, what is the answer? What do they tell you the answer is? Hmm? When you want to watch TV, watch TV. Is that the answer? Then why did they invent the TV? To watch TV. Why? Because you want to watch TV. It's not the answer. If watching TV is the answer, then why do TVs advance in technology year on year? Why do they need bigger TVs? Now TVs are bigger size of you know as big as walls. Curved TVs, 3D TVs, right? See how far how technology tries to answer a problem that is not answerable. <laughs> Yeah, I need you to understand the, the flawed system that runs in the world, ladies and gentlemen, and realize that you don't need to be a guinea pig to that. Come out of this. You can live your life doing whatever you want in your lay life, but ha adopt a different mindset. It is not right what people get, are getting you to do. But they'll tell you on, ad on the adverts, on the newspapers, they'll tell you, if you want something, come here, we have it as seen on TV. Come on, buy it. Here's the, if you have the money, we'll give you what you want. Buy now, pay later. They get you to sign the dotted line. Then, from there on, you've bought it, now you have to pay for it. But, 
If it were the answer, I wouldn't speak so passionately about it. It's fine, but it's not the answer. They started with black and white, then they moved on to color, then they, then they increased the screen size, and then they went on to 3D, and then they went on to curved TV. I don't know what now. You know, from those big back TVs to LED TVs, right? Technology is advanced. Yes, we need to save, conserve energy and all that, but that's not the only reason. And why do you need HD and then need 4K? Why 8K? <laughs> why? Because you want that definition, meaning you're still trying to please the eye. The eye cannot be pleased. It is not meant to be pleased. Here's the system that brought about the eye. How can it be pleased? If the whole system is flawed, if the fundamental system is flawed, how can anything that is spawned out of this system be perfect? This is a trap. So anything that is thrown out of this, anything that is spawned out of this, is going to be part of that trap. So you have various tentacles that jump out of this beast. You know, here you have the eye. This is a beast. These are its tentacles. Here you have the ear. Here you have the tongue. You can't please them because they're not, they're not fixed or connected to a system that can be pleased. Isn't this what your eye is connected to? This system? Where is the system run? In your minds. Yeah? This is not a perfect system. This is not a system meant to make you content. So then how can the eye make you content? How does the ear make you content? Because it's not connected to a system that is meant to make you content. It is connected to a system that is always incomplete. It is incomplete by design. It is meant to be that way because otherwise the world wouldn't last. Your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, your body, all of, you know, everything about you is geared to sustaining a world so that it will always be there. Because existence is the name of the game. You're here to exist. Not to, not to attend Nibbana. You're here to exist. The purpose of your very being is to exist. The I came into this world to exist. To continue to sustain the existence process. See, this is the existence process. Remember, the donkey will only keep moving forward for as long as it has the promise of pleasure. If, the, if you gave the donkey the carrot, what would the donkey do? What would it do? It would stop. Wouldn't it? It would stop. So why does the donkey keep moving? Because there's only the promise of a carrot, but not the carrot. That is how the system has been designed. Have you seen any other donkeys who just keep on going without stopping? Why do they keep on going? Because there's always only the promise of pleasure, but never actual contentment. I'm asking you to come out of those systems, you know, Come out and have a look at what's going on here. Observe what, what, what the world is putting you through. You know, why do you become dirty laundry to the world's washing machine? 
Come out of this thinking. Look at what people are doing to you. It's the same laundry, just gets soiled again and then washed again. Soiled and washed again. Soiled and washed again. Soiled and washed again. It's just a cycle. You're in a cycle. What's the, where's the exit out of a cycle? This is a cycle. This is the cycle of non-contentment. That's what it is. That's why life is not content. A contented life would not continue. Because life is the seat, is, is, is the search for happiness. Don't you agree? Isn't your life the search for happiness? Is it not the pursuit of happiness? So if ever you achieved happiness, what would be the purpose of life then from there on? It would stop, wouldn't it? If by living, what we do, Pata, is go after happiness. Yeah? Once you find happiness, then what is the purpose of life? That's it. Yeah? That would stop there. So the very fact that you're still living, the very fact that you're still living is evidence of what? Exactly. You still haven't found the purpose of your life. You still haven't found what you're looking for. Because you are plugged into a system that is not meant to make you content. It is only made to ensure that you continue to exist. Recognize that this is what is going on. If you understand this, this principle, that is your breaking out of ignorance. It is those who don't understand this, who are ignorant. And therefore, when they're ignorant, they just keep going on, round and round and round this cycle. All these sense organs are connected to this. So, don't, don't you think that my eyes are a blessing to me? It's not. It's not meant to be a blessing. You are born with a pair of eyes so that you can, you can continue existing. But because you have your eyes, you have this sense that, ah, now I can be happy because I have my eyes with me. All I have to do is open them and I'll be happy. So you make an effort. Just imagine you wanted to see but you had no eyes. Imagine that situation. It's what, that's what going blind is, right? People, you want to see but you, your eyes don't work. How would that make you feel? It would make you feel terrible. So what would you want? You would want your eyes. So now you have a pair of eyes. So therefore, you can always be hopeful that the next thing you see will make you happy. If you didn't have a pair of eyes, then you wouldn't be able to take that assurance. But you have some assurance now. Because you have your eyes, you can always be assured that the next thing I see will make me happy. Has it? No. The next thing you listen to will make you happy. The next thing you put in your mouth is going to make you happy. Is what you think. Because you believe sight, sound, smell, taste, touch is going to make you happy. But how can it when they're all plugged into a mind? This is the mind, by the way. Oh, this is the mind. This is what's going on in the mind. There's this flawed principle. There's this flawed system that's running in your mind. Because it's rooted in ignorance. Therefore, attachment is always there, and therefore, wanting is always going to be there. So, as whereas wanting is always there, this, these sense organs help you seek. That's what it helps you do. Right? For seeking and acquiring, these sense organs support you. Because you want. No other reason. 
You're born with the tools to help you seek. Remember, it's not your body that wanted a pair of eyes. It's the mind that wanted it. Because the mind is what, that is, is what wants the things that it believes brings it pleasure. So when the mind is born in whichever world it is, in the karma worlds, the rupa worlds, the arupa worlds, whichever form in which, whichever form through which you're, you're, you expect happiness to come to you, you need a sense organ that allows you to do that. You know, it's like if you, if you, are, a, um, if you are a hunter, you'd need bow and arrow. Yeah, because for to be able to do what you want to do. So in the same way, when you're hunting, what are you hunting for? You're hunting for pleasure. So, so these are your tools. This is your bow and arrow. Your eyes. The moment you open your eyes, hoping to catch an animal, catch prey. Your prey, you're looking for your prey. That's what you open your eyes for, in the hope that you, you'll catch your prey. And that prey will bring you pleasure. Recognize this. This is, the, this is the system that's running in the mind. So these sense organs are not things to be treasured. Yes, we keep them safe because we need them for our survival for as long as we're alive. So you have to you know, keep your, your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, your body. You know, keep it safe, keep it sound. That's fine. You must do that. It is your prime responsibility. But these are not things to be impressed by. The very fact that you can see is nothing to be impressed by. You should be disappointed by the fact that you can see. Again, as I say, people will think I've gone mad. Because there are people out there who are you know, spending so much money doing research and all sorts of other things to help people regain their eyesight. Because eyesight is so, so treasured. The ability to see is considered very precious. Some, you know, people show me these documentaries and stuff, right? how young people are helped and supported to you know, get themselves a good education, get themselves into jobs and earn money, right? get, earn respect from society, have a social status, and then go and live their lives. And there's a lot of work that's going on out there. A lot of philanthropists who support such causes, I admire that because it is all meritorious, yes. But to what end? To what end? You know, let's take this, this, this child here. We teach him, we help him grow up, you know, give him a good education. Right? Get, get, we find him a good job. Right? Find him a good wife. Get him a nice house, a nice car, a good, ni nice good job. Yeah? To what end? Yes, he'll travel the world, go from place to place, right? looking things, going places, watching things, eating things, smelling things, right? Doing whatever. To what end? <laughs> What's going to remain at the end of all that? Today he's nine. At 90, he'll be just the same person. Just with a few more memories of things that he's done. That's it. He won't have improved any bit. Not a bit. He won't have broken out of this cycle. So at 90, he'll be where he was at 9. But not anymore, because he's here. Today he recognizes that that process, 90 years of doing this, is pointless. If 9 years of doing this has been useless, then so will 
the remaining. Why do this for another 81 years? As we thought was right growing up. How many years should one go through this cycle before they realize that this is pointless? 20? Hmm? 20s in the house, I ask you. 30s in the house. How many years should you go through this before you realize that this is pointless? 50? I mean, if you have intelligence, you should be able to look at this and realize, ah, makes no sense. Five minutes is enough to understand that this is pointless. Not 50 years. But until and unless someone teaches you this truth, until and unless the Buddha or one of his disciples speaks to us and explains to us the truth behind this, we don't stop to think any different, anything wrong about what we always have been doing. Because this seems no, so normal, like, the, like your weight, it seems so normal. But when you get on the scales, you're shocked. Once you see this, aren't you shocked now? Now you're shocked. You begin to, good Lord, is this what I've been doing all my life? Now you say this. That is why you bring yourselves here every week. Because at least now you want to try and make a difference. You want to make a, you want to make a change. And you're asking, so I mean, have I started early enough in my life? So that I can to, to break out of this. Am I too late? I feel like I, I wasted what 40 years of my life, 50 years of my life. I should have discovered this much earlier. Am I too late? Will I be able to do this in the time I have left? See, now you are shocked. But you can't fault anyone. You just didn't have the merits. You had the merits to drive, in a, drive around in a nice car. You had the merits to live in a nice house. You had the merits to, to travel the world, like I did, doing all those things. You had the merits to think to yourself that you have a wonderful, lovely family, a good husband, a good wife, good children. You had the merits to have all that, but what you didn't have the merits was to discover this, the true path to unconditional happiness. <clears throat> Therefore, when you put our merits and the merits of these young children on the scales, hands down, we are defeated. Because if I had the chance to discover this at nine years of age, at eight years of age, my life would have been very different. I can hand on heart say, I wasted my life. No questions about that. I wasted my life. Yes, I learned a few things. I use those things today in the service of the sasana. But because now there is this vehicle that is there to carry me to Nibbana, because before this vehicle was there, we had to build it. Yeah, for that you needed the knowledge. You needed people to come together. Because to start something, you need people who have the know-how. You need people who have the skills. But now this is moving. See, when, when, when the bus won't start, what must you do? You're all on the bus, but the bus won't start. What must you do? You get out and start pushing the bus. Right? There's one driver in the driver's seat. 
Uh, he's playing with the clutch and the, the, the ignition. Say, right, come on, push it, push it, come on. Yes, yes, a bit more, a bit more. Now you need everyone behind to push the bus. Every person other than the driver in the bus is dead weight. They're not contributing to this, right? But once you get the bus moving, now who has to remain at the back pushing the bus? No one. Now that the bus is moving, what we need to do is come and jump on it. Because once you get the bus moving, the bus will move on its own. There are those who, when the bus stops at the shed, they will pump the diesel and you know whatever the fuel. But you don't. The people in the bus don't need to get off for that. Once you're on the bus, you can be on the bus until the bus comes to a stop. If they, if they, if you turn off the engine, then perhaps you'll have to push it again. But we believe that this bus will run for the next six hundred years. Now that we've got it started. So now, it is pointless if this child comes and tells me, Swami I also want to come with experience hmm? into the sasana. I want to go and do my O-levels, do my A-levels, do my university, do my degree, do my this, do my that, get married, have three children, buy a house, do all that, settle down, and with, once I have a lot of experience, at the age of 45, I'll come to the sasana. The bus will have gone. But when, we, when the bus was stationary, yes, it needed people who had the knowledge to get it moving. But now, because the bus is moving, people with knowledge, they jump onto the bus from time to time and they don't have to, they don't have to stop for the bus. Because a young child, you'd have to stop the bus. But others who are, who've got the experience, they can jump while the bus is moving. They can jump on board while the bus is still moving. It doesn't have to come to a stop. You don't have to switch off the engine. When the bus pulls up at the bus halt, you don't, they don't switch off the engine, do they? They just put their foot on the brake and the engine is still running. You get on the bus and then the bus moves again. So you don't, if only you switch off the engine, do you have to all get off and push the bus. Until then, no one needs to get off the bus. What we are trying to do here is to cleanse the mind so that the next chitta that is born is free of defilements, is free of, free of raga, desha and moha. Cleansing the mind is what we do. You can think of it as cleansing the mind base or the manindriya. This is what we are trying to do. Because there are things called the asrava, the defilement. They, they, they lie dormant in the mind. Every chitta that runs in the, with the noble eightfold path Cleanses this once. Every chitta does this. The analogy I gave the other day was if there was a if there was dust on this table, you take a clean, a clean piece of cloth and you wipe it once, and then it's cleaned by that amount. You take the cloth and wipe it again, and it's cleaned again and again and again and again. You keep you keep wiping it until all the dust is gone. Right. So the next time you take a piece of cloth and wipe it, there's no dust on the cloth. Now it's clean. But each of the chittas that ran before that, their job, their task was cleaning it. Right? So in the same way, what we are trying to do here is we are trying to have as many chittas run through us. All of us. We are trying to have as many chittas that run through us that run the Noble Eightfold Path cycle. Not this cycle. Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta. So when a chitta runs with the, the understanding of Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta, it cleanses the mind. 
Now, what is the advantage? What is the special advantage then in coming early to this asana? Here's the answer. You have fewer defilements that have been collected over the years in the mind to clean. It's like, a, it's like an iron. It's easier to clean it when there's very little, if it's only just starting to rust. It's solid, it's hard, it's strong, right? But once the whole iron gets rusty, you have to be very careful when you're cleaning it. Perhaps sometimes you can't even save it after that, it's too rusty. It's very brittle after that. You know, one wrong bend and it breaks. You can't do much with it. That's why we started the Noble Hearts program, as you know. That's why you have the 18 minus program for young boys and girls. Because they have, they have fewer dormant defilements. Whereas when you come to our age, right, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and so on, in lay life, we've been practicing this so many times over and over and over again. Right? Remember, every time you run this cycle, once this ignorance and attachment, they're reinforced. So then to undo that, you've got to keep pressing Control-Z, Control-Z, Control-Z and Control-Z. You've got to keep doing it. So many times. And besides, you know, it's only chittas that run through the Noble Eightfold Path that cleanse it. What guarantee is there that every chitta is going to run through the Noble Eightfold Path? I always ask our Swami Nasis, Anagarika, Anagarika, Mahatmiyas as well, when you go to the Valley Malva, how many of those chittas, now you'll understand yourselves as a Shravaka, Shravikas, and Vasis, if you go to, when you go to the Valley Malva, right? How many of those chittas are actually run with the Noble Eightfold Path in true Samadhi? Samma Samadhi. Samma Samadhi is a component of the Noble Eightfold Path, right? Because you may be, you know, one chitta runs, you're contemplating on Anicca. Next time you're looking at the clock, you're wondering, oh, what time should we finish? Who finishes? We finish. So now you're thinking about something that is time-bound, right? Again, out of Manasikata. Right? Then you think, right, we finish today at 5 o'clock, then I have to go back home, fetch the children. I have to go and do the dishes, like this, this stuff, that stuff, the other stuff to do. So now you're thinking about that. It's not the memory that, that bothers you, that, that actually hinders your progress. But when those memories come, if you are not in Yonis or Manasikara, now they run in Yonis or Manasikara. So if you take a, a day as an example, there are, you know, the, what are, what are, what are the, the, the numbers? Yonis or Manasikara and Yonis or Manasikara. Chittas that have run through the mind. <clears throat> it's like a trillion to one is the ratio. You improve on this as you practice. But to begin with, it's like maybe the whole day you will have one single chitta that has run through Yonasamanasikara. The rest of it is all Yonasamanasikara. Each chitta that runs with Yonasamanasikara simply redoes the cycle. It keeps, it keeps feeding this cycle. Only a chitta that runs with Yonis or Manasikara <clears throat> is a chitta that is run through wisdom and not ignorance. And that doesn't feed this cycle. What it does it is it breaks out of this cycle. It's an effort to break out of this cycle. But it's like one chitta trying to break out of the cycle, a million chittas that keep feeding this cycle. So that's why it's harder when you start, because you have no practice having done it before. But as you keep doing it, you keep getting better at it, and better at it, and better at it. There'll come a day where 
maybe today 99% of your chittas are on ayonaso manasikara 1% in yonaso manasikara fair enough but if you keep on practicing then there'll come a day where 75% of your chittas are ayonaso manasikara based 25% yonaso manasikara based keep practicing there'll come a day where you'll be half and half and i don't mean by you know morning to 6 to 12 o'clock is yonaso manasikara and 12 to the full morning ayonaso manasikara that's not what i mean you can't you know give it's not like time bound it it happens right and then there could there'll be a point where you will cross the 50% threshold now you are doing more yonaso manasikara and less ayonaso manasikara until one day maybe 90% of all your chittas are running yonaso manasikara and the more it is it turns towards yonaso manasikara the quicker you get to nibbana that's the way it works the quicker you get to nibbana because the more yonaso manasikara the more the mind is cleansed and the more the mind is cleansed the the, the better the chances that the next chitta that arises is not one that is based in ayonaso manasikara again as the going gets tough the tough gets going as you keep on doing this the toughness gets going initially it is very tough but as you keep doing it the toughness that gets going it becomes easier through practice it becomes easier not just because you've done it before but now every time every chitta that runs based in yonaso manasikara because it cleans the environment the likelihood of the next chitta being based in yonaso manasikara is higher much greater than it being one that is based in ayonaso manasikara because like attracts like it's like if you start if say this place was dirty right what are the chances of attracting people to come to this place just imagine this room was very dirty okay there was mud on the floor and you know cobwebs and all sorts right you you come you randomly walk into this room and you realize god this this room is very dirty i should start cleaning it okay so you get your hold of a broom maybe a mop or something and you start start cleaning another person comes along and they say it's a dirty room i'll come back later so they leave another person comes along dirty room i'll come back later and they leave but you carry on now you can see what's going to happen you carry on and as you carry on you have started cleaning say you've now cleaned 10% of the room a person randomly comes in they say oh okay you're cleaning the room a part of the room is clean shall i come and help you now they want to come and help because they can be in the part that is clean while they clean the uh, the, the the unclean part and then as you go on cleaning you know 20% 30% 50% now half of the room is clean then it's the the likelihood of people coming and staying is greater as you start cleaning this room and the clean room is almost completely clean then there's there's a chance that more people will come and stay than the people who will leave and once when the whole room is clean now everybody wants to come because the room is clean so they have no cleaning to do themselves that's the way it works so when you cleanse the mind by the, through with the mind itself running anicca dukkha anantha as the mind cleanses this mind base the more chittas there's a likelihood of more chittas coming along to clean the mind but when you begin as an as a prutak jana there is not a single chitta that cleans the mind base they are all run with ayanaso manasikara 
So the first thing you go, all got to do is recognize this. Make a firm resolve to come out of this flawed system. Don't be a victim of your circumstances. Yes, this is what you were brought up into. Your parents couldn't give you any, any different because they didn't know any better. Yes, neither did my parents. But I didn't let that decide my fate, did I? Just because my parents couldn't teach me what I need to, needed to be doing as a monk today, they couldn't teach me that, but they taught me how to be a good, good, good person, a good human being, a law-abiding citizen. But what they didn't could teach me, and because they couldn't teach me, was to attain Nibbana. I didn't allow my circumstances to determine that. I was in a job. I was a married man. I didn't allow my circumstances to determine the destination of my life. Because once you realize this is what is going on, now you have compassion towards all. That is, you know, after that we get to work on that. The truth that I had seen, I helped the people around me see. And therefore, people who were with me as my family also began to understand, little by little, that being together as a family is not the answer to happiness. As I said, I was a married man. My then wife and I, as we began to see this, we realized that being together as a husband and wife is not the answer to happiness. Because we wanted to be together for, for happiness sake. But once you realize that is not what you need to do for happiness, why do you any longer want to be like that? Why would you? Once you realize that whatever you are doing is not going to help you get to your destination, what do you do? You change your direction. You want to get from here to Kandy. Right somewhere down the line you take a wrong turn. After you realize you're on the wrong road, you've taken a wrong turn, what do you do? You change, don't you? You turn around. You get back on track. That's why your navigator, you have a navigator that's, uh, that's there that tells you, right? You take a wrong turn, turn right, turn around at the next junction, at the next roundabout, take the third exit, because the third exit puts you back where, back where you ought to be. That is what you need a navigator for, because you have a destination. In the, with the navigator, your destination is fixed. That's why the navigator always keeps telling you, no, 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 back, back, back. Turn right here, turn left here, third exit there. At the next junction, turn right, whatever. And if you take a wrong turn, it will put you back on track. Because in, the in the, your navigator, your destination is fixed. Have you got your destination fixed, I ask you? Answer. Is your destination fixed? What is your destination? Huh. Is it happiness? Is your destination happiness? Are you sure? 100%. Hmm? Then, when this navigator is telling you that you are on the wrong path, why do you still keep going on that path? If you are still on that path, then although the you have set the navigator to a destination, you want to go somewhere else. I, you have this experience if you used a navigator. 
sometimes say I wanted to go to London. I set it on the navigator, but before I go there, I want to go to my mom's place to get something. But as we set off from home, we set London, London city. So the navigator is always telling, no, 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 turn right, and then I turn left. Because although I've set the navigation to London, right, I first want to go and collect something from my mom. But the navigator doesn't know this. So the navigator keeps saying, London. I say, no. But it doesn't stop. It'll keep on saying, no, next, turn right. You, you've taken a wrong turn. Turn around again. It'll keep on saying. So when the navigator is always pointing you at, at this destination that you claim you want to go to, but, but you're going somewhere else, the navigator will keep on saying this. But you've you got to ask yourself then the question, are you sure that the destination you want to get to was the one you entered into the navigator? Are you sure? If so, then when the navigator says turn right, why are you turning left? Perhaps you are not being truthful to the navigator. Maybe you've told the navigator you're going to London, but your mind is set on going somewhere else. But if you tell us you want to go to Nibbana, the Mahasanga will always still keep telling you and guiding you to Nibbana. But wherever you have to make a choice, if the choice you're making is not keeping in line with what the navigator is telling you, you need to recognize that in those situations, in those events, in those circumstances, although you've said to the navigator, you've informed the navigator that you want to go to London, you want to go to Nibbana, your destination is something else. You don't need to come and tell the navigator again, no, sorry, 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 I don't want to go to London, I want to go somewhere else. You recognize that you have a different destination in that moment. Maybe overall you want to get to London, yes, but if I keep saying, the navigator keeps saying turning right, the Mahasanga keeps saying turning right, and you always find yourself taking a, taking a left turn. He's always trying to put you back on track, but you always keep going off track. At some point, you're going to have to recognize, mm, maybe it's not Nibbana I want to get to really. Maybe I like to have the Mahasanga think that it is Nibbana I want to get to, but maybe that's not really where I want to get to. That only you know the answer to. Sometimes, of course, this can happen. Mahasanga says turn right because you're on a path, right? You, you take a left because you have to go somewhere, collect something and then come back again. That's fair enough. Yeah, but the navigator keeps saying turn right, turn right, turn right. But you want to go left like I did, like I said in the example I had. I have to go collect something and then turn. These are your duties, your responsibilities. Okay. But are they genuinely because of duties and responsibilities? Or are you also doing it to please yourself? Are you going back on this cycle? Wanting, seeking, acquiring and pleasing. Be honest to yourselves. I'm not suggesting that in none of you are. But be honest to yourselves. 
if your navigator keeps saying turn right and you find yourself turning left all the time once in a while okay because you have to go collect something but all the time if you find yourself turning left then perhaps you've entered the wrong destination under the navigator the thing is this navigator this particular navigator we are talking about it comes pre-built with the destination you can't change the destination yeah so if you come here these navigators either dressed in one of these or with a prayer mat on the shoulder if there's someone sat in front of you these navigators they are they have a fixed destination they're never going to you can't reprogram the destination. they come pre-programmed right so you have teachers as Ravikas, Ravikas, and mercy so on you have teachers monks and those who are willing to help you they will always keep guiding you towards nibbana you got to ask yourself the question am i following that instruction or am i doing what i want to do am i taking a different turn Who has the answer to that question? You must. That is your compass. Yeah? Remember? The Buddha says that one who becomes an arahant is one who is free of the asrava. Gabba meke upajanti. One who keeps on, this, this process of gabba is to gather, to collect, to, 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 to form bhava. They end up being born. When you say they, we are actually talking about jati. There's another meaning to this. You know, there are those who are born as humans, as gandabbas. That's one meaning, but there's another meaning that you can get from this. Those who, those who engage in the process of becoming or bhava, there's Upajanti. Jati happens. And when jati happens, there can be two forms. Nirayam papa kamino. There are those who go to the hells. Saggan sukati noyanti. There are those who go to the heavens. Because there are two types in which you can form this bhava. Papa bhava and punya bhava. There are both like cells. Cells that keep feeding energy. But ultimately, paranibhati anasava. Those who are free of defilements, free of asrava. Asrava are the defilements that lay dormant in the mind. It is they that defile the chittas, the asravas. And the chittas cleanse the asravas and the chittas are defiled by the asravas. That's the way it works. So you become an arahant one day, not when there's an arahant chitta that is born within you. You become an arahant when there are no more defilements in the mind. It is the chittas that cleanse the defilements. In other words, if you've listened to Guru Handra's sermons, you've seen this example. Right? There's a there's a tub, there's some water in here. Say so there's a wheel that's rotating. Yeah. So this comes into contact here. And say there's a dye of a certain color that gets that gets added to this. Right? So you drop some dye of colored liquid. And when you drop it on this, as it turns one round, it adds it to the water. Right? So if you're dropping, say, a, a blue colored liquid, <coughs> then every every cycle this turns, the water turns blue. 
Yeah. Now, even if you stopped adding this, if and this and this wheel keeps turning. Now you stopped adding the die. Okay, the wheel keeps turning. As the wheel turns up here, now you've, even after you've stopped adding it, if you take a bit of water from this wheel, when when it comes back to the top, and you say you rub your 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 finger on it, and you see what color the water is, what color is it? It's blue, because you've kept adding the blue dye into the liquid, right? So now you've got to add something else that takes out the blue, that discolors the blue. So for that, you have to keep adding something else. Maybe you add some other chemical that disintegrates the, the, the blue color that's in there, maybe whatever chemical there is, and it takes out the color. It makes it a colorless liquid. So that chemical you have to put. So the blue, the blue chemical is the ionosomanasikara. That is the, the pigment that turned the color blue, the dye that turned the color blue. And now you're adding another chemical that's going to take out the blue, make it go back to colorless. And that's another uh, chemical. So that is ionosomanasikara. And Arahant is someone who has completed this process, whereby the water is now clear. So don't we are not actually focusing on this, the wheel, that is adding either the blue or the or the color the colorless chemical. What we are actually focusing on is here. What has happened ultimately in this basin, in this container that has the water. That is why Parinibhati Anasava, one whose mind is like this, pure, colorless. That is one who goes into Paranibbana. So the chittas that have been taken on the Dhamma, see, if you have your ear here, the ear can take on either the blue liquid, which is drushti, that comes from the kalyanamitta, not the kalyanamitta, kalyavanamitta, <laughs> ignoble friends. And then on this side you have the Association that comes from your kalyanamittas. This is what's happening right now. So while you're here on Saturdays or a Sunday, you're getting this. But when you're outside this place, you're among your friends, you're among others, ignoble friends. They're not bad friends. They're just ignoble. They don't know the truth about the world. They just keep saying things that keep feeding this process. That is what they do. So every cycle this, this wheel turns, you're adding that pigment to the, to the water. And so therefore it, goes, it's, it keeps on getting blue, blue and bluer, until it becomes a very dark blue. That's why it's better to come when you're younger into the sasana, because there is little blue here to wash away, to decolor. But if you've lived your life a lot in, the, in, 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 in a lay life, in a lay life and you know, by the time you're 30s, 40s, right, you have a lot of preconceptions about the world. There's a lot of anger, there's a lot of jealousy, and, and hate and, and, and lust, all these defilements that have been accumulating in here that we have to wash away. And to wash away again, you need the same thing. But now you need a very strong chemical. And sometimes, you know, it can't be too strong because if, you, if you're getting too strong, then, you know, the, you, you can't bear it. It's too strong. So what we have to do is we have to keep feeding it again, drop by drop, but over a long period of time. That's why if you start late, it's going to take longer to come out of this. Unless, of course, you are very wise. If your wisdom faculty is very strong, then ditte ditte matang is enough. But how many people are born with such, such, uh, such a strong wisdom faculty? 
These days you don't get that a lot. These days you have a lot of Naya people. They need to constantly keep being told the same thing over and over and over again. Every Saturday. But that's okay, you know, I listened to the Dhamma sermons for five long years before I decided it was time for me to come into robes. Five years, that's a long period of time. Some of you haven't been listening so long. But there must have been some paramita as well. I don't believe this is the first time, but somewhere down the line, merits help me. But here's the thing, back when I was a layperson, I didn't have the Dhamma so profound back then. Yeah, I know most of us would have come into this asana for fear of the four great hells. Though these days we don't even talk about the hells. Because it is not out of fear for going to the hells, you need to come to the sasana. It is by understanding this, when you understand that happiness is not out there. Because the mind is constantly searching for happiness. But so when the mind realizes happiness is not out there, then it asks the question, so where is it? Nibbana is the only bliss. So then the mind turns towards Nibbana. That is why you need to be coming here now. Yes, we had Nanicha, Guru Handro, you know, Deshakatuma back then was, you know, he, he preached the, that stuff and that was enough for us. As I said, there must have been some Paramita connection as well. That was enough. One sermon, two sermons, you know, by that time we decided that someday something's going to happen. We just didn't know when it was going to happen. But we were on that track. But nowadays we don't even talk about the Great Hills. Hmm? We don't even talk about Vasalagathi or any of that. We go straight into the Dhamma. No harm in doing that. What I'm saying is now the medicine is so potent. One drop should be enough. Those days we used to take a bucket full. But now one drop should be enough because this is so, it's so powerful. You know, straight bullseye. Straight to the point. So, you know, in this era, if you're coming along to the, to the monastery and joining the sermons, you're very fortunate people. So, you know, young children like this, listen to these talks now. At this point, if they can at least understand half of this sermon, that's a great achievement. See, there's those, those doers over there, right? They have joined the 13 minus girls program. They spend their day at the monastery. In the evening they go back home with their parents, but the day they spend here at the monastery. This monastery has become part of their part of their life. At only a tender age of eight. <laughs> See? That is because the Dhamma is very powerful now. You don't need lots of it to understand the truth. Little bit is enough. High concentrations. Little is enough. Those days I don't think, you know, we could we could have had so many young people because, you know, who believes in the four great hills these days? Isn't it? Especially young people. They say they come in video games. <laughs> but it's not real. Who believes in the great hills these days? Who believes in the heavens these days? Hardly any at all. People don't even believe in rebirth. 
all that has become fantasies that's why when i when we speak to new audiences i don't spend time talking about hells and heavens and rebirth and what not i just say let's come to the point this you have to understand because this is logical you're looking for happiness happiness is not out there if if it is why are you eating cake over and over and over again it's not so then people begin to understand if you if you if you understand this then eventually the hell start to make sense heaven start to make sense rebirth starts to make sense without my help because these are the fundamentals teach someone the basics teach someone the fundamentals they can then start thinking along those lines and the hells the heavens and rebirth all become possibilities they all become possibilities today using this you can explain how a human being dies and then is going to go on to become become a dog you can it is it is all in here it's perfectly there but i won't talk about it in a sermon maybe not to a an audience an online audience because most people they'll catch this part of the sermon and they go useless <laughs> people do that apparently people do that so i've been speaking for about two and a half hours now they'll catch that part of the sermon and go no useless because aminanza said a man dies and becomes a dog can't be true so the whole sermon is nonsense so out of compassion sometimes we don't even talk about that stuff because we want people to be in, become fall in favor of the dhamma not fall out of the dhamma not fall out of favor of the dhamma and of course you understand when we talk about this there's no religion here yeah we don't talk about a particular faith there's no religion here this is just a science it's a philosophy that everyone has to agree so coming back full circle to where i started today's talk how do you count your merits today money in the bank property to your name how many countries in the world you've traveled to size of your car today you actually have begun to understand what real merits are for that you need merits isn't it to understand what real merits are you need merits so you're very fortunate we are all very fortunate we have finally discovered the buddhist real teachings it was always there there was not a time where it wasn't there because if it wasn't there then they would they would we would need another buddha to 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 resurface it it was always there somewhere in some pocket somewhere somewhere we just had the good merits to come across that and now we want to make sure that others who find ourselves in our shoes right they have merits but they need some support from the environment to bring them to this path it was difficult for us to discover this it shouldn't be for others should it say you're walking down the path you find uh, some pathway that you know and you want to go go you want to cross from this village to the next but there's a forest in the middle the first person who goes down that path they have to clear a path right and then you sign post turn left here turn right here village up ahead and so on so that the next person that comes along they don't have to get lost 
Yeah, so you make it easier on those that follow in your footsteps. And that is what we're doing right now. We had such good fortunes to come across this teaching. Now we're signposting it and making it so easily and readily available to as many people throughout the world, not just those who understood Sinhalese. When I came across this teaching, if I didn't know any Sinhalese, I'd be lost. But it shouldn't be like that from here on. It shouldn't. There's evidence of that in the room, isn't there? Now, your, un- your not understanding Sinhalese is not a barrier to coming across Nibbana. But it was when I first came across the Dhamma. It shouldn't be like that. So, your not understanding Sinhalese should not be a barrier if you are, I don't know, German, if you are Chinese, if you are um, Japanese, if you are Af- South African. You shouldn't be. Wherever you come from, if you are Tamil, should it be a, an obstacle? If your mother tongue is not Sinhalese, should that be an obstacle? No. But who's going to make that happen? We should make that happen. Whatever good fortune you had to come across the teaching, others may not. They may need extra support from you. So f- towards that, do whatever you can do. That's why always I, when I speak to young people, I ask them to invite them to learn another language. So we can take this message to as many people as we possibly can. For 600 years, it will be there. But to whom, you have to decide. This is the only part to liberation. There's none other. Fortunately, you know, we started in English because that is the international language. But I don't think everyone in this world understands English. So our task should be to make this accessible and available to as many people in this world. I think the Buddha would want that. Because what was his resolve after all? To attain the bliss of Nibbana, to attain freedom, not just for myself, but for all sentient beings. If he was here, he may have some special ability to speak to anyone in their native tongue. Maybe, I don't know, that's the Buddha. How do we know? But if he didn't, if he didn't have such an ability, I, I, I think the Buddha would be learning all the languages that people spoke, so that he could, he could convey this message to all. In fact, if he was there back then and there were his 80 disciples, he would have said, right, you go learn this language, you learn this language, you go learn this language, and so on. All 80 of his disciples, his chief disciples, he would have sent away to learn various foreign languages so that they could carry his teaching far and wide. Because this teaching is not for Buddhists, ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand this, right? It is not for Buddhists. Buddhists come later. This is for all sentient beings, because this is the truth. It is the universal truth. So let's aspire to that. And certainly what you give is what you get. So whatever effort you make in helping other people reach this truth is help that you're giving yourselves. This is one thing if you do, it will not be in vain. In fact, the only thing. Everything else is simply a means to an end. This one, do it. You only need to do it once. Nothing else in life can you do once 
and say, that's it, I don't need to do it again. Everything else is just unfinished business. This is the only thing, you can do it once, that's it, done. This is what all sentient beings are looking for, and with our help, it'll be accessible to many more people. I want all of you to be part of that, in whatever way, in whatever capacity you can. Don't feel, who can, what can I do? I'm just, you know, I'm old. I'm, I just live, I live alone. What can I do? I'm not even a Buddhist by birth. What can I do? Don't think about what you can't do. Think about what you can do. Because others thought about that on your behalf. That is why you're here, isn't it? Others thought on your behalf. That is why we have an Anagarika program. That is why we have a Sila Ravika program. An Uesi program, see? That's why we have a Noble Hearts program. That's why we have an Anagarika program. Others thought on your behalf. Before the first Anagarika came here, where was the Anagarika program? There wasn't one. But someone thought on their behalf and created it. Before the first Sila Ravika came here, where was the Sila Ravika program? There wasn't one. But when there was a demand for it, some people got together. They weren't Silas Ravikas, the people who got together to, to, to create the program. Were they? No. So they created it for the Ravikas. And now we have it. See, always someone who is not one of us will create it so that we can then go and enjoy. The Buddha created the Buddha Sasana. There were no Buddhas around then. He was the only Buddha. So he created a Buddha Sasana so that others could become Buddhas. So that is our goal. Let's all work towards that. Perhaps this is not a message I can share on Sunday yet. Because they're still making their first steps, taking their first steps. But you lot, you've been doing this for a long time now. In whatever capacity you're capable of, do what you can. Because the Buddha Sasana must live for a long time so that we can all die. <laughs> all right. Let's take a moment to transfer the maze then. There's a short announcement to make. Siumaga, our Dhamma school, is taking new applications for the 2024 year. So new applications will be accepted from today until the 16th of December. So if you wish for your child to join the Siumaga Dhamma, Dhamma program, the Dhamma school, uh, please contact the Charity Trust, the Punyabare, and uh, request for an application completed and submitted before the 16th of December. There are many of you whose children are already part of that, but if you are, if you are not, then I would encourage any parent who is serious about helping their children to achieve happiness in life. This is the path. So even those joining us online, Siumag has an online Dhamma school as well. You don't have to be here in Sri Lanka or at the monastery for this. You can join online and give the gift of Dhamma, give the gift of true happiness to your children. That they'll be forever grateful to you for. You know, just giving them an education, they're not grateful to you for. Some, some are, some aren't. Very educated children 
Sometimes when the parents are older, they just completely discard them, throw them into a care home, educated children. So giving them wealth, giving them an education is not enough. If you really want your children to be grateful to you, then help them to attain ultimate bliss. I, I don't know a single Arahant who was ungrateful to their parents. Name one if you can. Even the great elder Sariputta before his passing away, he took permission, sought permission from the Buddha, and then on his way to his funeral, his own funeral, where he did stop at his mother's place to pay his debt of gratitude. That is why in the Buddha Sasana, you cannot have a child who is ungrateful to their parents. It is impossible. If they have really assimilated the Buddha Sasana, then they are by their very nature grateful to their parents. So if you expect gratefulness, gratitude from your children, then giving them your wealth, giving them your education is not going to do it. You have to give them this asana because then they begin to understand their real value. Let's transfer the merits and bring today's sermon to a close. All right, so first and foremost, let us take a moment to transfer all the merits we have acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, listening to the Dhamma, inviting the Swami Nahasi to preach the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching, and with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the, in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us trans the mates we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin come rain or shine. Let us also transfer this message to my teacher, Guru Swami Mohanse, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarika and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer this message to express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be there by transliterating these talks, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, and may by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer this message we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May by the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, our employers, our employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported and assisted us, our teachers included in any way, shape or form. By the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits. 
to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Zambu Sasana, that as transmits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful lie over us and keep us out of harm's way. And by the power of these merits, may they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let's also take a moment to transfer these merits to our ancestors, our forefathers, and those who have predeceased us. Reminding ourselves that it is in their blood, sweat, and tears today we are able to enjoy the, the fruits and hard work of their labor. May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer these merits to those who make great sacrifices on behalf of the peace and harmony of our nation. Members of the armed forces as well as the police force. Let us also transfer merits to those who have lost their lives in, in the wars, be they friend or foe. As well as those who would have lost their lives in natural disasters such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, fires, blizzards pandemics and so on, reminding ourselves that in this infinitely long journey of samsara, they will all have been mothers and fathers to us, friends and family to us. Let us, out of gratitude and loving kindness and compassion, take a moment to transfer all these merits we have acquired to all of them. May by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land. And may you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become a Rahatan Vahanse or an Arahatiranin Vahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautam Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the noble Triple Gem be with you all. The members of the Mahasangha will transfer their blessings to you. Sapa la deva, 
තුන්රුවන්ගේ සුවිසි අනන්ත මහා ගුණ බලෙන් සිරු ලෝක සිල සත්වයෝම නිබ්බාන පරම සුඛයෙන් සුප්ත දරුවෙක්වා සාදෝ සාදෝ සාදෝ